I recently recorded what was supposed to be a one-hour podcast with Chris Schulte, a seasoned medical malpractice defense attorney. Time flew by in this one-hour discussion, expanded into a two-hour discussion. He provided so much useful information for our listeners, I didn't want to hit the stop button. So we split the podcast into two segments. This is the second of the two segments. I think we just kind of want to move into where your judgment comes into play, because once you start gathering all the facts, your job is to um, make a probabilistic determination. Of course, nobody can tell, you know, how any given case will turn out. But just given your background, uh, training and experience, you have a general idea as to the likelihood of success. I mean, of course, I'm not sure many people predicted OJ would go free in front of a jury. But um, and that is one of the problems with with. Um, with any individual jury, but broadly, your task is to let the doctor know and also the insurance company know where you see this going. Is this are the facts such that this is not a great case to uh, to take to trial and and um, and hoping to try and get the best possible settlement uh, within policy limits um, is the next best thing. Uh, talk about your role in giving the news, and sometimes it's not pleasant news either to the client or the carrier or both. Yeah, the uh, and this is I think probably the the place where you know my job more most closely parallels the physician's job. You know, it's not my job to tell them what to do or why to do it. Kind of like it's not the physician's job to tell me to get something or I have to get something, you know, their job, just like my job is to give them all the information I possibly can that's within my control or my ability to obtain and then give, you know, advice and recommendation, obviously up and it's going to be up to them ultimately what they want to do, particularly here in, in, in my state, which is a, a consent state uh, with the policies and have them make the decision because, you know, there are a lot of, there are a lot of things that control whether a case is going to settle or not, separate apart from, you know, the dollars and cents of any, of any case, you know, demands and offers. And some physicians are, their personality dynamic, they are so risk averse yep. that the last thing they want to deal with is, you know, the guy sitting in the suit and tie or getting my email at five o'clock <laughs> in the afternoon on Friday to let me know that the complaint is served in, you know, the comment I get is, hey, Chris, this is what I buy insurance for. Get rid of the case. I don't want to deal with you. Um, and then those, there are the physicians, again, that are very risk tolerant. And um, I've seen this probably more of late um, than I had in years prior. You know, it's not necessarily the risk tolerant by, by nature, but they have to be risk tolerant because sometimes, you know, particularly in a locum tenens type of um, position, Yep. Physicians get a case settled, or, you know, they're having a difficult time getting privileges in some other state uh, or some hospital, and they need to be 
ultra protective of the integrity of of their license and the claims history. Not not saying that it takes them out of a job, and it, it hasn't yet. Knock on wood, but it does give them another hurdle that they have to jump over, uh, or and explain to whatever entity is credentialing them. Um, you know, other factors. You know, where are they in their, in their stage of life? You know, hey, right. I'm about to retire, and I don't want to deal with this. Or I'm about to embark on a career. I don't want to deal with this. My wife's having a baby. Uh, my husband's going off to, to serve his country. I mean, there's a number of other things that, you know, don't play into you know, settling a case or trying a case linearly, but do impact on the decision to or not to settle a case. Because, you know, I need my client all in at trial. And it may be that they're not going to be all in at trial because things that are, you know, outside forces that they have no ability to control. Um, so it's, there's a lot more than simply how much the demand is and how much the offer is and what the insurance coverage is. So let's talk about a little bit about when it makes sense to settle. Um, I, I know there are some doctors who think they will never settle, but sometimes it depends upon the facts of the case. And, and maybe it makes sense to be the first person to settle rather than the last person to settle or vice versa. Talk a little, little bit about, about that in terms of strategic thinking. Yeah, I mean, um, each one's going to be different. I hate to qualify all, you know, all the comments like that, Dr. Siegel, but they're going to be different. Um, and, it, you know, one case I'm going to tell you to be the first case, first guy to settle out. And, you know, the next case we going to listen, we made the wrong decision on that one. Sometimes it's it's personalities. You know, I might have a good relationship with with opposing counsel, um, and he is willing, she's willing to cut some level of a you know, using bunny quotes here, break to get me out early because they don't like the other doctor, uh, either the way the presentation is, or the way the medical facts are, or to some extent maybe um, you know the attorney's ability to defend the case. Um, and you know his desire or lack of desire to go to trial, and he plans counsel thinks that he will get a globally a better result if he takes my doctor out of the mix first as opposed to last. Um, that's one of those case by case processes that often takes communication with the opposition um, to to allow that process to work out and figure out from my standpoint. Where is my doctor best served to resolve the case? Should he be the last man standing? Because um, certainly there's an argument that can be made in any of these cases. I'd rather be the last man standing because then I can kind of point at all the other empty chairs and say, hey, listen, Dr. Smith had more of an opportunity to do something with this case than I did. I saw the person for an hour, two days before, whatever happened. Um, a lot of it's obviously financially driven, you know, with a with a limited policy, you know, the 250 policies here in my state, you know, versus the millions, um, you know, it's a lot more risky for me to be in the case um, at 250 than it would be at a million because at 250, I don't have a lot of wiggle room uh, on, on the upside. Uh, if they go over 250, then I'm into my, my doctor's personal assets. If I have a million dollars, you know, now I've got a little bit of wiggle room and maybe I can bring a case. If it's, if it's a case that, is probably going to be a plaintiff's verdict. You know, maybe I can bring that in underneath that million dollars, and I have I have the ability to do that. At two fifty, it, it becomes a lot lot tougher to do that. 
Um, so certainly the, the limits do do drive some of it. You know, interestingly enough, um, be, if, if one is a peripheral defendant, but it looks like they're, you know, the this is a case that broadly will not be dismissed. Being the first to settle for a modest amount, um, if the release is structured properly and there's language that needs to be included in it, and some of our medical justice members are aware of this because they've used this language, they not only will be let out of the case, but because of the language that's being used in the release, it's not reportable to the National Practitioner Data Bank, which is one of the reasons doctors will fight tooth and nail. I think the key thing is, is that, and this only works if there are multiple defendants in there, and uh, the reimbursement is for legal expenses only, and money is not going to the plaintiff, but from the other side's perspective, they believe there's going to be a pot of money from five different people, and so because money is fungible, um, it doesn't matter so much that this money is characterized as reimbursement for legal expenses only, but the benefit to the early doctor defendant who settles for a modest amount and gets out with that language in the release is that it shouldn't be reportable to the data bank and to the extent it is reported, one can petition to get it removed and we've definitely worked with client uh, physicians to do that. And you can, you, know, you certainly give the plaintiff a little bit, maybe not necessarily a war chest, but you give them a wallet of money to continue prosecuting the case against the remaining defendants. So there's there's definitely incentive and reasons for both sides to do it from a data bank report. Certainly it, it is a very big benefit for the physician because it doesn't result in the ding. Yeah, I'm surprised that some plaintiff attorneys haven't figured out that the doctors fight tooth and nail just because of the data bank. Now certainly there are other reasons to do it, but that's a fairly sizable determinant. And it's, it's somewhat surprising because there are so many line, line items in the data bank. There are at least 250,000 physicians who have been reported to the data bank because if, if um, payment is made in the name of a doctor by an insurance company, um, either settlement or judgment for even a dollar that gets reported to the data bank. Now, a dollar settlement is not something that anybody would raise an eyebrow over, but, um, but it is reportable. And I think most doctors, to the extent that they can keep a pristine record want to want to maintain that lily lily white record. Um, yeah, I, 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 in defending these cases, Jeff, I, mean, I think that's a big problem that the the plaintiff's bar doesn't appreciate that this is this is not simply an exchange of wealth from one side of the table to the other, and and it is not simply right. a professional slap <laughs> in the face of a physician. Resolving a case can have some and. and separate apart from the ego uh, check with the data bank report, it does have real life consequences in, you know, unless the plaintiff's attorney has been involved on this side of the table in a prior life before they went and started to do plaintiff's work, they don't appreciate um, the significance of that data bank report to the physician. Um, not that it's going to, like I said, not going to take them out of the job, but it is something that has to be explained and, and it, they don't, they just like I really don't appreciate having to negotiate a lean down after a case settles and working with the United's or Blue Cross Blue Shields of the world mm. to beat down a lean. You know, they don't appreciate that this is something that the physician, either individually or with, with my continued involvement, 
uh, has to explain um, and, and fill out paperwork for. It's, 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 a, it's a hassle for the physician. Yeah, I hate to give practice pointers to plaintiff attorneys, but uh, this is one that would certainly serve everyone's interest. If um, one thing that is not reportable to the data bank is payment that is made in the name of a doctor related to a an oral demand for money. Once it's committed to writing, saying, give me money for my client, and money is paid by an insurance company, that's de facto reportable. But if it's in relationship to an oral demand, now it may be that an oral demand goes nowhere, but there's certainly some circumstances where negotiations can be had and then ultimately a settlement occurs that is not reportable to the to the data bank. So you may end up with the same outcome, but um, it's not unreasonable to try an oral demand first precisely because it's not reportable. And even if a carrier does report, and they almost certainly would report anyway, uh, one can petition the data bank to remove that report. But that's almost unheard of, just an oral request for money and having it being honored. Typically, you want to see that someone's really going to go uh, go to the mat uh, for the distance. But it really depends upon the facts of the case. There are some cases where it's so obvious that a settlement needs to happen early on that if a plaintiff attorney were to just couch this as an oral demand, um, it it might very well um, make their life a little bit easier and also their client's life a little bit easier, as well as the doctor defendant. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the next time I get that, Dr. Siegel will be the first time that I, I yeah. that would work. I mean, for me, for any number of reasons, it's, it's put in writing, but you know, if, if I could somehow convince the opposition, hey, just tell me what you want. Don't send me a follow-up email. Don't put exactly. it in your letterhead. Yeah. This will be a lot more palatable for everybody. Yeah. I mean, that's a real give me because the data bank is such a, um, I mean, I understand why it was developed and why it was formed um, decades ago, but I think it outlived its usefulness. And now it's just considered, you know, a scarlet letter without much benefit. So Let's talk a little bit about um, carrier wants to settle, doctor does not want to settle. You actually believe the case is defensible. Now what? And describe that in the context of a hammer clause as well as the consent to settle clause. Um, because sometimes doctors don't even know what their rights are. And it does come down to what their policy allows them to do. And your role in that particular decision-making process, because the client is really your first concern, but you also, you know, get paid by the carrier. So a lot, I guess I asked you a compound question and I shouldn't have done that. So <laughs> guilty as charged. Yeah, yeah I, I think I can make some points on it. The, I mean, this is the classic triumphant relationship that, that in, in my world, I'll hear so, so much about them. Obviously you said, I'm, I'm beholden to the physician client. Obviously the fee cost bills are being paid by the insurance company. So Obviously, there is this inherent conflict. You know, this doctor, I'm hopeful I will never have to see again, at least in this setting. Um, mm -hmm. This insurance carrier will continue to give me business. I'm hopeful if I do the right thing and handle their claims appropriately. Um, but I'm unethically bound to the insurance company. Um, I'm ethically bound to the physician. And I'd rather keep my license as opposed to worrying about losing a carrier so the ethics part of it we're supposed to be and, and i'd like to say across the board obviously and, and the carrier knows that it's not as if they're playing in a vacuum they understand that your first duty is to your client right right 
most I, I think across the board they they all do um now in those situations where your client doesn't and obviously this is going to be state specific um mm -hmm. contract specific um you know some states do have the requirement that the contracts the insurance contracts have the consent to clause consent, consent to settle clause within them and you referenced i had this happen the other day and I'm, I'm thinking kind of real world i don't know what my homeowner's insurance policy says um mm -hmm. i know i pay a premium and the physician said i don't know if i have a consent to settle clause or not and i found that a little bit unusual um but if i think about it in more of a thirty thousand foot level that probably isn't so unusual um you you call your broker and they find you know abc insurance company you pay a premium and you think you have coverage and you and you don't know quite what the nuances are but you know if the contract provides for it and the physician has availed uh himself of of that opportunity that right and and doesn't want to consent and the insurance company says hey listen this is right within the you know mm -hmm. the, the continuum of where we think the case should set, settle financially well then i'm kind of in a pickle um uh -huh. it, either way you know whether they want to consent consent to settle the case or not consent to settle the case um I've made my recommendations, given my advice. In those situations, oftentimes it comes down to, you know, Dr. Smith, I'm going to recommend that you go see your own personal attorney or get a personal attorney, obviously at your own expense, to kind of weigh in on this process because then we've eliminated insurance company and your insurance uh, assigned attorney have eliminated your fear. And I'm not saying that fear is irrational, eliminated the fear or concern that these guys aren't acting on your best behalf now you have someone who's completely 100 percent your attorney and is going to make the recommendations uh that he sees she sees are appropriate for this particular case i mean the um, consent to settle clause is something that is very desirable so if you're shopping for professional liability coverage that would be one thing to look for i i would argue that's one of the most important things to keep you in the driver's seat going forward. But but even with that, even with that clause, um, many policies will have something similar to what is known as a hammer clause. I don't think it's ever called a hammer clause, but it means that if you <laughs> refuse a reasonable settlement um, and you don't give your consent to settle, if the case goes to trial and you lose well above the amount that it could have been settled, you may very well be responsible for the overage. So there's a way for carriers to kind of prevent entirely irrational behavior. I think it's called the hammer clause, but um, I'm sure it goes by different names uh, in different policies. Yeah, I mean, the, in most of the carriers that we do work with, Dr. Siegel, we have you know the, the letter that goes out um, either at the beginning of the case or at some reasonable pointed time in the case where there is some discussion or there should be some discussion regarding settlement. They remind the physician, this is a consent to settle policy. If you don't consent, if you don't consent or you do consent again, it's your right. Be advised that, you know, failure to consent could result in this. You know, we will still pay, you know, we still have the, the coverage limits that we were responsible for at any overage is, is on is on your your own nickel. Um, and you know the consent to settlement provisions and policies are you know 
what, what did I hear? The, the absolute power corrupts absolutely. It is definitely yeah. a good power to have, um, right. but it can't be abused because there are situations where the facts of any given case will say, listen, this is a case that needs to go in the rearview mirror really quickly. And if you know, some physicians you know, to get beside themselves on not wanting to sign this consent to settle and in using that, that provision in their policy, you know, theoretically come back to bite them. Um, and that's, candidly, since we've gotten the consent to settlement provision in our legislation here in this state, that has become more of a, a topic area of conversation with the physicians in each of my cases, um, all of my cases, uh, to let them know, hey, what is the downside of you consenting? What's the downside of you not consenting? From a defending the case in the trenches, sometimes a failure or a refusal to consent to settlement um, has the benefit of beating the other side down financially. Listen, if the doctor isn't going to consent to settlement at this level, will he take, you know, $25,000, $50,000 less to be rid of the case? Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's a good negotiation tool uh, that we have available to us. Um, sometimes a failure to consent to settle kind of lights the fire on the other side and said, listen, I'm not going to give you any more opportunities. I'm coming after the doctor personally. Right. And that is one of the challenges is that if you don't consent to settle and it, the the settlement may have been within policy limits and you take your chances at trial and you lose big, you could very well have a liability um, where not in Florida, but in other states where you lose your house or you certainly can lose asset and potentially even be bankrupted. Um, so it's something to think about. I know that there are some doctors who still want their day in court no matter what, but they want to hedge their their bets. Um, and one way to potentially do that is with a, a high-low agreement if the opposite side will agree. Can you just describe kind of on a on a 30,000-foot um, view level, what is a high-low agreement and how is that a tool to try and mitigate risk so that if the doctor really must have his day in court, he doesn't necessarily put his entire assets at risk. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, under, understanding that in this arena, everything is just a, for the most part, a shift of wealth one side of the table to the other. No one wants to lose. Um, in a trial setting, someone is going to lose. There's going to mm -hmm. either A, the doctor's going to lose the judgment for you know a million dollars. Or the plaintiff's attorney, plaintiff is going to go to case and get a big fat goose egg from the jury, and so he's lost everything. So it's a zero-sum game uh, for the most part. The, the high-low agreement allows both parties to protect their upside and their downside. Mm -hmm. So the plaintiff's attorney is going – and the plaintiff is at least going to get some money regardless of a verdict. So if it's a you – know, if, if it is a zero verdict and the jury comes back with a determination of no liability – Whatever the low of that agreement is, that amount is going to be paid. Um, you know, so for a, for a high low of a hundred thousand five hundred, um, for any verdict that's returned by the jury less than a hundred thousand dollars, the insurance company is assuming they're behind this, but the defendant is going to pay the plaintiff a hundred thousand dollars. In between one hundred and five hundred. Well, then that payment's going to be made by the defendant to the plaintiff. What the benefit to the defendant is on the high is that if there is that situation where there's a runaway jury, a runaway verdict, 
and they come in with a $5 million verdict on a million dollar policy, but there's been a high low agreement agreed to, well then the most the defendant's gonna pay is $500,000. So there's incentives for both sides of the table to reach those high lows because they're gonna be protected one way or the other. Um, you'll still have the verdict that comes out, in, but the judgment that's ultimately gonna be rendered will be you know, that high or that low or some number in between. So it's, it's kind of like putting a stop loss order on a, on a yeah. stock sale probably. A great way to put it. I've seen it with cerebral palsy cases where the damages are so great with a life care plan that's so expensive and certainly um, it's a sympathetic plaintiff to the jury. But in terms of standard of care, the doctor will likely follow the standard of care. So the doctor would check the box and typically win under standard of care, but under damages and who's sympathetic the plaintiff would win. So each side brings to the table tremendous risk they're trying to um, to abate. And the high-low agreement allows the doctor to have the day in court and everybody's going to get some benefit out of it. The doctor's not going to risk all of his personal assets, typically get something addressed within policy limits, if at all possible. The plaintiff will not walk away with absolutely nothing. Uh, it may not be much for the plaintiff. It may be mostly reimbursement of the attorney for their expenses, but it, it at least allows everyone to go to court, have their day in court, but not be not for either side to be bankrupted uh, in the process. It's a pretty useful tool, but it, it does take two to tango. Both sides have to agree to the agreement in advance of the jury coming back and uh, and rendering uh, its verdict. And, and my understanding is you can do this up to the time that the jury actually comes back and renders its verdict, correct? Oh, yeah, until the foreman opens his or her mouth um, yeah. and utters the words, until the knock come back, comes back, absolutely. Um, and, it, you know, negotiating a high-low is, is, is basically the same process as negotiating a number. I mean, each mm -hmm. side wants to get a the most favorable high low they can possibly get, um, you know, either as wide of a range or as narrow of a bandwidth of a range as they possibly is, is, is humanly possible. Um, and oftentimes negotiating a high low is a lot more difficult than negotiating to a number. Um, really just depends on getting the person on the other side, um, you know, how much money they've got in it. And the, the example you raised is probably, it is probably the premier one, you know, there's, so much money mm -hmm. that has been invested by the plaintiff's attorney to prosecute a CP case and bring in these high-level experts because, you know, you're talking neurologist, child neurology, you know, radiology, uh, all kind of things that isn't cheap. And the plaintiff's attorney at least wants to get his money back right. um, and doesn't want to go, go in a red. By the same token, the, the defendant doesn't want to pay 10, 15, 20 million dollars to pay for the life care needs for an affected child until, you know, normal life expectancy. So there's there's definitely incentive on both sides to come to that to that range so they can mitigate, you know, the downside and upside risk. I guess as you get closer to the jury rendering its verdict, it becomes even more challenging because you've all the facts are out on the table and you kind of get a general feel for how the facts and the presentations played before a jury. So there's probably a sweet spot in terms of coming up with the high-low agreement as opposed to waiting to the last minute. But but even so, at the last minute, maybe maybe it is a coin flip and nobody really knows and you're, you're on the same 
you're in the same boat, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, the, in, you know, unfortunately, sometimes ego egos take over at that point. I mean, the physician, not physician, the attorney egos. You know, yeah. I've I've invested my time and my effort at this point. I've already tried this stuff. Let's go ahead and wait on it. I want I want to win the case. I don't want to kind of I don't want to settle on something. The gambler's fallacy. Yeah, it's a gambler's yeah, fallacy. Absolutely. Even though you've you know you've lost uh, twenty five times at the roulette table, um, you're up next. Next time or next time, it's going to work out <laughs> just fine for you. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. Listen, we're running tight on time, right? I do have two additional questions, kind of the potpourri, and would like your feedback on that in terms of using a private investigator to help determine if a patient is living the life of someone who's claiming some type of horrific injury. And I remember we had um, one member physician of medical justice who was an ophthalmologist and the, the, um, the plaintiff um, said that they couldn't see at night. They couldn't, they had no vision whatsoever in a dark place and had to cut the, her deposition short because she wanted to be able to drive home before it got dark. And so they ultimately put a um, put a private eye on her, and uh, it turned out that she went straight to a movie theater and she was watching a movie, eating popcorn. So uh, wh whatever challenges she had with being able to see in the dark, it wasn't so challenging that she couldn't see a movie. Um, but uh, that may not be the most egregious example. But what about using a private investigator? Is it ethical to do so? Is it done frequently? What's the purpose of doing it? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, it is certainly ethical. Um, it's really a strategic choice based on the case, what the injuries are, and I'm, and I'm likely to get something. I mean, surveillance, um, you know, private investigator in any case is definitely a crapshoot. Um, I mean, financially, you know, you got to put the investigator out there for God knows how many hours, and you're trying to prognosticate, okay, when's this person going to be active? And nine times out of ten, I'm not going to know that. Um, it's, it's just a, a, a complete shot in the dark. Um, and so then you you butt heads with, all right, I, I can put a private investigator on someone seven days a week, 24 hours a day, and maybe I do get something, and I want to present that to the jury. And now the jury's looking at the defense attorney or the defendant going, and you practically stalked this plaintiff. Um, <laughs> And they, they punish you for that. So there is a sweet spot, you know, as to how much time, how many hours you have on a particular plaintiff, where that sweet spot is, you know, it's all going to be dependent. Um, you know, we, do I want to get lucky and have him hit something the first, the investigator hit something the first day? Absolutely. Most of the time that doesn't happen. Um, I have had it argue against me, just like I told you that, you know, we had several days. Um, you know, we picked random days, but it was a lot of days, and we got some good stuff um, on video, but plaintiff's counsel made a, a big stink and a, and a big arguing point in front of the jury um, that this almost border on harassment uh, of his client. Um, typically, we stay away from kids. Um, almost exclusively, we stay away from kids, um, and you got to pick your spot where you're going to do the surveillance. So, you know, you know, we had we had one where, um, you know, they wandered up to uh, it was a motorcycle convention and things got a little rough and rowdy. It was it was it was potentially great video, but they captured stuff on the video that the jury would have never seen. Um, 
and a result of this, a couple of images that the investigator caught that he probably took a little bit too far in catching it, the judge wiped out the whole thing. He said, listen, none of this stuff is coming in just because I'm going to punish you defendants. So we use it, but it's not in, it's, it's probably the exception rather than the rule, depending on the injury. And sometimes it gets explained away. I remember when I was taking care of a workers' compensation patient who was trying to make the case that he was fully and completely disabled, but he didn't quite seem it. Um, and so the workers' comp company um, put surveillance on this. And this is a patient who said he couldn't bend over and pick up his newspaper um, in front of his house, yet it showed him in Indiana, getting into a car, crossing across Illinois, going into a riverboat casino, and jumping up and down in front of a craps table with his leg up in the air, shouting "Seven come eleven, seven come 11. <laughs> so, um, when 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 he was shown the video, when the patient was shown the video, there was a a pause, waiting for his response, and he just looked up and said, "Well, Doc." <laughs> Some days are good, some days are bad, <laughs> and um, yeah, that, that's definitely the classic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what you, you call me on a good day. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All right, got room for one more, one more question, and and this is actually an important one. Um, ultimately, the relationship between a, an attorney and a doctor-client is a human one, and so what happens if a doctor doesn't work well or trust? the um, carrier supplied attorney? What options do they have and does timing make a difference on that? Um, well, they, they always have options. Um, some not as palatable as others. Um, you know, if I would hope that if that relationship has not blossomed like I would like it to or it has soured like I don't want it to, that I would have seen that first. Yeah. And that again, given given my obligations to that client to allow him to have the best defense possible, I would have backed out um, and said, listen, doctor, you need to get your, you need to ask for a reassignment of counsel. And I probably would have made that call beforehand because um, I could see it coming. You know, you request the insurance carrier, can you please assign different counsel to Dr. Smith? We're just not seeing eye to eye. Um, but it's, the just as much as the insurance carrier is um, uh, is entitled to a, co a cooperative client in defending the case, mm -hmm. so too is the client entitled to a a, a lawyer who will advocate who will zealously advocate his best interest. And if neither one of those are happening, um, well, the the insurance company is going to make some calls. Either a um, you're not cooperating the defense, Dr. Smith. I know you have a consent to settle clause, but we also have the clause that says that if you're not cooperating, we can do whatever we want. Case is over with. Yep. Alternatively, if, if you don't like your attorney and, you know, the attorney and you can't seem to resolve your differences and it has gotten to the point where it's almost a conflict of interest in nature or we can, we foresee that coming, well then insurance company, we have an obligation to assign you a different attorney because at the end of the day, the insurance company stands in a fiduciary relationship mm -hmm. with its insured physician. And if it doesn't do the right thing as a fiduciary, well, then the insurance company has some issues down the road. So I, I think the insurance company at that point is going to sign counsel anyway. Um, but I'm, like I said, I'm, I'm hopeful that I would have seen that coming and said, listen, doctor, I, you probably need someone else to take this, take this baton and, and take it all the way to the finish line. 
And, and timing also does matter. So if the doctor has the belief that one week before trial he could change um, captains of the ship here or or, or attorneys, um, the judge may not allow it. It may very well be that yeah. the judge is on a timeline and realizes it would be impossible to get another attorney up to speed. And even if the magic's not there, the judge will say, well, look, um, the magic wasn't there three months ago and you should have done it then. Um, keep playing. Correct. Yeah. Pro probably is not going to happen. Yeah. The judge in, in that, that situation is probably out of the insurance carrier physician and attorney's hands. I mean, the attorney may raise a stake, the physician might as well, but the judge is probably going to hold people's feet to the fire. Hey, listen, I got a docket I have to manage and you have kind of screwed this up. Everything's gone swimmingly. People have been dis discoveries gone is, is taking place. You guys are trying this case hammered out afterwards. Chris, we are up to the line in terms of time. I can't thank you enough for participating today. You've been a wealth of information in terms of educating um, physicians and, and the public more broadly about the type of job you do, the challenges you face, and the things doctors should know um, if and when uh, they are sued. Do you have any final thoughts? Is there a question that I should have asked but forgot to ask? And and I'm not including any <laughs> Dr. Dr. Welby trivia at this point. <laughs> No, I, I, I think that we've covered the waterfront. I mean, this is pretty much medical malpractice, you know, 101 that we see we see every day. I mean, we've talked a lot about depositions, but it's equally true to trial. The same presentation, the same personality dynamics apply with, with equal force and effect there. Um, I just tell the doctors in, 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 in these claims, just like I you know, would tell them now, you know, don't worry about the lawsuit because if you're worrying about this lawsuit and the, the weeds of this lawsuit, chances are you're not worrying about the patient sitting right in front of you. And right. I don't want to see you a second time because you forgot something to take care of that patient. So let us let the attorneys deal with the headaches. That's what we're here for. You worry about the patient. That's the most important thing to Absolutely me. Absolutely solid advice. Um, Chris, how do, how do our listeners get in touch with you if they want to um, reach out? Sure. So my uh, my email address is c s c h u l t e that's at w s v legal dot com uh, or my uh, phone number eight one three two two one 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 five four or our website which has all the information is www.wsvlegal.com. And in addition. Um to try and get the list of how to, um, or rules for depositions, you can reach out to us at info at medicaljustice.com. Again, info at medicaljustice.com. Chris, thanks a thousand for, thank, actually thanks a million for joining us today. I hope you'll come back and we'll speak again. Thanks so much. Thank you, Dr. Siegel, I appreciate it. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MEDJUST. That's 1-877-MEDJUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com.
Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of medical justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N, Epison Frank O, news, at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews at medicaljustice.com. Now, if you're not an existing member of medical or dental justice, but want to bulletproof your practice from medical legal threats, our admin, Wendy Cates, is your best resource for information about our protection plans, implementation best practices, and pricing models. Wendy can be reached directly at 336-358-5587. We offer discounts for large groups and protect doctors of all specialties in all states. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.